who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And so I want to point out a couple different aspects of this kind of love, this Christian agape. And the first thing to realize here is that biblical love, Christian love, true salvific love is rooted in regeneration. Rooted in regeneration. After all, did you catch the exiomatic character of this love? Meaning, did you catch the self-evident concept that is being given to us here? He says, you have no need for anyone to write to you He could have said, you have no need of anybody to teach you. Because look what he says. For you yourselves are taught by God. You're taught by God to love. There are certain things in the Christian life that should be and ought to be this self-evident. Even though we can teach on love, we can elaborate on love, we can expound on the nature of Christian love, we can certainly do all of those things, but there is... And there has to be a fundamental baseline, an experiential knowledge of that love that results directly from being born again. You don't need a 12-step program on how to express Christian love. I think the fruit of the Spirit, after all, didn't Paul say in Galatians chapter 5 that one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is love? Probably the most powerful virtue that the Spirit can produce in our lives is this concept of love. The reason I bring out this issue of being self-evident also is because I think too often the Christian faith has been turned away from a self-evident, exiomatic, supernatural phenomenon into an exercise of self-doubt. Too often... Christian counseling is weighed down with having to painstakingly explain the obvious to Christians who have been, according to Paul here, who have been taught by God and by His Spirit to know the truth and to apply it. The question, therefore, at some point has to be fundamental, doesn't it? Why won't you apply it in your life? What's the problem there? Maybe it gets to whether or not you actually have the Spirit whether or not you want to apply what the Spirit is telling us. So I think too often, in many instances, we've gone from the pulpit to the therapist's couch or the psychiatrist's couch. We need a life coach all the time to be around us and point us in the right way to the things that we already know how to do because they're so clear in Scripture. Sadly, When Christians begin to doubt everything and need an explanation for everything, what it creates, brothers and sisters, is a culture of cold dependency where the Christian counselor becomes almost as necessary as the means of grace in your life. And that's not, I don't think that's what God intended. I don't think that what God intended is for each one of us to have a Christian counselor guiding us along the path of Christianity every waking moment. I think the Spirit of God ought to produce life in you. And obedience in you. Uh, I'm kind of hammering on Christian counseling a little bit because I think what we've done is we've created all of these psychological, emotional, and therapeutic contingencies to obedience. And sometimes, you know, it's kind of like sin. What's the greatest advice you have for sin? Don't do it. Do it. I mean, you need a 12-step program for that. Sometimes life can get complicated and we can be beset by various weaknesses and sins to where we do need that admonition in our lives. 
But there are some things that Paul is saying here that are axiomatic, self-evident, and that are a byproduct of the Spirit of God having produced that in our life. So sometimes, like I said, it boils down to a simple question. No fruit? Well, maybe there's no root. If there's a root, there ought to be fruit. And the reason I talk about regeneration is the phrase that you see there in your Bibles. When he says, you have been taught by God. An interesting word, uh, theodidaktos, is a Greek word that is attributed to the Apostle Paul. In other words, it seems as if Paul created this word. Wow, he just kind of made up a word. He does it all the time in the New Testament. I love it, for one. Um, because I create words sometimes, too, <laughs> that just don't, that don't seem to have any correspondence to the English dictionary. That's okay, as long as they convey some sort of uh, sound doctrinal truth. But theodidaktos literally is a compound, God and teacher or teaching, God teaching you. And even though we can say that the word here, because it's only used right here in the New Testament, as a matter of fact, outside of the New Testament in ancient antiquity... It's hardly, it's hardly found, found anywhere, anywhere outside, outside of the Apostle Paul, 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 but the concept is certainly found in the Bible. You know who teaches the concept of being taught by God, maybe more explicitly than anybody else? Jesus. Look in John chapter 6, verse 45. You know this if you're a Calvinist. This is one of your favorite pretexts. Because it deals with effectual calling. Effectual calling is that aspect of the order of salvation that says that God, through the gospel, effectively, powerfully, efficaciously calls you salvifically to himself. That's what regeneration is all about. And in order to substantiate this, Jesus quotes John 6.45. Look at what he says. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. He says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In the context of especially in the gospel of John, coming to Jesus is a synonym of faith. Faith could have just as easily said, said, it would have been taught by the Father, Father, believes in the same name. Dynamic, dynamic there. But notice, but notice what Jesus says. It is, it is written in the prophets. prophets. See that? See that? Oh, so, oh, so that's interesting that, because that, that, that means is that the concept of regeneration does not originate in the New Testament. Obviously, obviously, if it's written in the prophets, it must mean that this concept of being taught by God specifically has a rich Old Testament background, and it does. Actually, actually, Jesus, Jesus in John chapter 6, quoting, quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 54, 4, Isaiah, Isaiah 54, verse 13, says this, All your, all your sons, sons will be taught the Lord, Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be, will be great. great. Listen to what one, one commentator said about this. He says, within, he says, within the context of Isaiah's description of blessing is to be enjoyed in the Messianic age. These, these words refer to a future time when God will live so intimately in and among his people through the Spirit that they will, need, they will no longer need to be taught by human intermediaries, but will instead be taught of God. Another what he's saying is that it's, it, it, it comes a point in time, especially in the New Covenant, as the Spirit of God comes to dwell within us, that, that, that we no longer need somebody to elaborate upon us what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be regenerate, what it means to be born again and in the new covenant because we'll be in the new covenant it's almost like we no longer need to be taught 
about the, the law day and night and that we need to be hammered with the law. We love the law of God now. The law of God is written on our hearts. We uh, obey it out of love and desire. Jeremiah, he says, similarly portrays the new covenant as a period when God's people will not need others to teach them the law, but will know it innately. For God will write it on their hearts. Isaiah, earlier in his prophecy, also envisions a future age when all the nations will stream to Mount Zion in order that God may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. That's exactly what regeneration does. It teaches us God's ways, His character, His manner, the fact that God is love. Think upon your own regeneration. Think upon your own conversion. When your heart was melted, when you experienced for the first time the supernatural, salvific love and grace of God, I don't know what kind of conversion you had. I mean, we were all saved the same way. But even as Jesus taught in John chapter 3, conversion is like the wind. Maybe you had a conversion like mine. Mine was tornadic. Mine was like a hurricane. Some of you had a conversion that's more like a pleasant breeze. Still beautiful. Still powerful. And it's still the Spirit. It's still the wind of God. Regeneration is mysterious. But we don't doubt when we see the wind, we see evidence of the wind in our lives. And when God supernaturally converts your heart, you are immediately brought into an experiential knowledge of the love of God for the first time. I don't want to reflect too much upon my own experience. But I just remember as a 19-year-old, Sinner, a whistler in the dark. I remember coming to that point where I finally realized that the gospel was true. Jesus is real. The Bible is the word of God and heaven and hell hang in the balance. And God sent his son to die on a cross, to hang on a tree, to be a substitute in my place. And the thought of that was so overwhelmingly glorious that it melted my heart by the grace of God. Amen. That's what regeneration is. It's a removal of the old heart. It's a removal of the heart of stone. And it's an implantation of a heart of flesh, one that is sensitive and responsive to the Spirit of God. Well, that is the fact that love here is rooted in regeneration. But if we're careful to Notice in the text, it's also susceptible to regression. I like to alliterate, so I use the word regression because we're talking about the threat that can come to our love. Look at the text. It says here, you don't need anybody to teach you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And then he says, for indeed you do practice it to all the brethren who are all of Macedonia, but, and then that adversative there is bringing in some sort of disruption, some sort of potential threat to the love that is self-evident and operative in the church's life. He says, but we urge you. So there it's a, even demands an exhortation. He urges them. Parakaleo. He calls them to something else. He says, we urge you, brethren, excel still more. And that word there, excel still more, that language there, literally means to go above and beyond. 
What's that telling us? Well, number one, it's telling us don't allow your love to become stagnant. Don't, be, don't allow your love to be fruitless. Don't allow your love to be characterized by some sort of you know, uh, indifference towards genuine needs in Christianity. And that's what the Macedonians were. If we think about the Macedonians for a second, we're reminded that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1-3, through 3, uh, the Apostle Paul described the, the, the Macedonians as poor. In other words, that they were impoverished. And so the needs, uh, the love that probably the Thessalonians were lavishing upon these Macedonian brethren was probably dealing with that poverty, with those finances. We're not told. But at any rate, we know that we are to practice this. And notice what Paul's doing here. He is strengthening what is strong in the church. He is admonishing them about a direction that they are going in. And pastorally, I don't think there's anything more wise than that. Pastorally, uh, to encourage the church to continue in whatever godly direction you are going in is wise. Peter says, to remind you of the same thing is safe. It will fortify you against becoming lukewarm, cold-hearted, apathetic, and ultimately, therefore, loveless. You think it can't happen? I remind you of Revelation chapter 3. It happened to a church, the church of Ephesus. They forgot their first love. And you know what is so striking about the church of Ephesus, if you remember what happened there, he praised them because they hated the work of the Nicolaitans. Remember, this heretical cult or whatever group it was. And so the church apparently, doctrinally, apologetically, orthodox-wise, they were sharp. They combated error. They stood against false teaching while their hearts grew cold towards the love of Christ. And you can have all the apologetics in the world. Brothers and sisters, listen, I am a Vantillian presuppositionalist. I spent years reading presuppositional apologetics, and I'm glad I did. But, you know, now looking back, I'll be quite honest with you, and I don't want James White to hear me say this, but I'm kind of tired of reading apologetics. Matter of fact, I think I spent a few years too many immersing myself in apologetics when I should have immersed myself a little bit more in theology and in the study of Jesus and who He is, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. I don't, my personal preference, okay, nobody get offended here. You love apologetics, I love you, I still love you. And I love apologetics, don't get me wrong. But I think, I think I should have spent more years focusing on issues that dealt with heart work rather than just how to defend the faith. Besides, after you learn the apologetical methodology called presuppositionalism, you learn that it's really, (laughs) you don't really even need to defend the faith, just declare it. It's God's word. What are they going to do? You can't disprove it, you know? Oh, this love, I tell you what. It's susceptible to danger, and we need to be careful that we maintain our love and that we have love for all the brethren, and that our love grows, that our love deepens, and that we know how to spot threats against genuine Christian love. You know why I'm teaching you about love? It's so simple, isn't it? Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, and you tell me, do we still need to be taught about love? I think so. 
First John chapter 3, let me just warn you, the Apostle John, especially in the letters of John, is known for being the theologian of light and darkness. In other words, it's black and white. There, there, there's no middle ground for John. It's, uh, it's just brutal truth all the time. I, I, I preached the letters of John. I forgot how long it took me, but uh, as you find that over and over, you commentary, say it over and over. You know, John just doesn't miss words. He just flat out tells you. And you know why I think that is? Is because John introduces himself as the elder, which historically we know that the Apostle John lived the longest before he died. And so he's probably an old, old saint of God. And on his way to heaven, there he is, his last years, his last days, writing this epistle. And he has no time to mess around. He just tells you straight up the way it is. You got no love in your heart? You're not a God. He says in verse 16, look at this. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. The apex of love is the cross, right? That is where love is on full display. And then he says, and he could have said, as a consequence of that, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren and I don't think he's joking. I don't think he's being metaphorical either. I don't think he's using hyperbole. I think John is saying, you better be ready to lay your life down for one another. You know why I say that? Passages like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 and following, where there the saints were commended because they were harshly treated, but also because they did not shy away with identifying themselves with Christians not only harshly treated, but thrown in a jail for the faith. And identification with those kind of Christians can end you up in jail. And yet they were willing to do it. And they even allowed the seizure of their property. I've often mentioned this before, but can you imagine what it would do to, biblical, uh, to American Christianity if in Frisco, Texas, all of a sudden they start confiscating Christian property. It would take your church, take your cars, take your house away, take your job away. Okay, now we're going to start finding out who's really on the membership rolls. And John is telling us, we ought to lay our lives down for one another. Have you attained to this? And that's why Paul exhorts us to excel even more, to go beyond. Um, the Apostle Peter here is in perfect unison with the Apostle Paul. Let me give you some theology of Peter, some Petrine theology on love, because there's a lot. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Oh man, that says it all right there. Because number one, the love that you have for the brethren has to be sincere. It cannot be plastic. It cannot be superficial. It cannot be this, this, this sort of, you know, surface level, cheap Love. You, you, you've got to mean business. And your love, and your love will show us because biblical, biblical love is love. The fervent love. 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 love you. Praying for you. We'll call you. We'll come to your house. 
will knock on your door to see how you're doing, will keep you accountable, will link arms with you, will go to the hospital with you, will bring you meals, will take care of your children. I will give you money. I will do what I have to do to love you in truth and in sincerity. And if there is not that, then your love is no better than the love of pirates then your love is no better than the cheap, superficial love that we see all over the entertainment industry and Hollywood and the culture and everything else. If love has to cost us if we really love one another. He says, therefore, in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, above everything. Listen to that language. Is this Peter, like John, just kind of <laughs> overstating the importance of this? No. Above everything, he says. Keep fervent in your love for one another. You know what the wisdom of this is? The wisdom of this is so so critical because what he's saying is if there's not fervent love for one another, guess what there is? Drifting. A, 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 A very subtle hardening that creeps in. And before you know it, you are so bored with Christianity, you could give a rip. That's what happens to us when we don't keep our love fervent for one another. Come on, let's be honest today. If we don't maintain, cultivate, if we do not nurture our love for one another, if we are not intentional, if we don't wake up on Sunday, and if we don't get in the car on the way to church, and when we don't walk in the door, and in our mind we're thinking, okay, Lord, lead me to love right now. Some people have a hard time coming to church. I've heard, I've heard people say spiritually coming to church is one of the worst things they have to do. <laughs> because it's, you know, it's, uh, there's a gravitas to it. There's an accountability. And so Peter says, after he lists all the virtues of the Christian faith, he says at the very end there, he says, add to your brotherly kindness love. What he's saying there is you can do so much community without love. You can get by, you can can mingle in, you can blend in, and you can be participant in all sorts of evangelical uh, activities in the church. But if you do not have love, you are a pretender. Love gets to the sincerity of our worship and our fellowship and our devotion to one another. There's two more responsibilities on the list. Number two, tranquility. Look at what he says. Why do I say that? It's like, when's the last time I went to church and heard a sermon about tranquility? (laughs) So everybody just relax right now, right? Take a chill pill. (laughs) Look at what he says, though. He says, He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Wow, that's interesting. If you take it from a biblical theological perspective, meaning if you look at at this this, passage in the context of what the Bible teaches regarding all of this uh, holistically, Paul's admonition here to lead a quiet life actually is the opposite of what we could consider strife, quarreling, meddling, those kinds of things. Let me read to you what the Bible says on that. Proverbs seventeen fourteen. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. 
So abandon quarrel before it breaks out. In other words, what it's saying is don't be a quarrelsome person because like water, once it's out, it's impossible to control and it makes a mess and it gets everywhere. I mean, just the other day, my daughter discovered that she can take her sippy cup. She could turn it around (laughs) and the water comes out (laughs) and it goes wherever she wants to point that. And so she got it all over our ottoman and just just going crazy with it. (laughs) It was uncontrollable at that point. Trash! (laughs) The baby's baptizing the living room. (laughs) The Bible says, keeping away from strife. Proverbs 20, verse 3. Keeping away from strife is what? It is an honor for a man. But any fool will quarrel. Don't misunderstand what that is not saying. That's not saying that we can't engage in, let's say, apologetics debates or you're witnessing and it gets combative. That's not what we're talking about. It's talking about quarreling in an irrational fashion, engaging in ad hominem, carnal confrontation with people. That we want to stay away from. What's amazing here is that the Apostle Paul uses a very interesting word once again. The word, maybe in your Bible, that says, make it your ambition. That word there, philotomai, literally means to love honor. That's why I started my sermon saying that what Paul is giving us here is a dignified Christian. Because the word he uses now is make it your honor. Uh, It is an ambition that is honorable. It is something that you could aspire to. That's what it is. And every time it's used in the Bible, it's an aspiration towards something that is praiseworthy. Philotimeo. Love, honor. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, The BDAG translates this as live orderly. And it's going to go perfect with the context. In other words, God does not want to look inside of our lives and find chaos because we are living disorderly, dishonorably, and irresponsibly. You know, this is important for us today. And um, understand what's happened in the church. Let's go back to the 1960s. In the 60s, In Christianity and in many evangelical circles, the hippie movement was syncretized with Christianity. It was called the Jesus movement. And during that time, not only was experiential, emotional, ecstasy, charismatic, and Pentecostal activity at an all-time high, represented mainly by denominations like the Assemblies of God, Calvary Chapel, and the Vineyard, But the church also adopted a let-go-and-let-God attitude of life in many circles. They urged above everything that what was most important for our character and for our Christian walk was intimacy with the Lord, which is largely based on a person's emotional experience. Instead of sitting on the sidewalk and hitchhiking to get a ride into Hollywood, Christian hippies gathered around bonfires and guitars with little concern of being dignified, honorable, responsible, hardworking, mature, advancing financially, hard work. Uh, They were followers of Jesus Christ 
who, I will remind you, was himself a hard-working carpenter who understood what it meant to mind your own business and work hard. That movement confused the biblical Jesus of Nazareth, who, I'll remind you again, lived a perfect life of obedience to God's law. They confused that Jesus with a hippie version of Jesus who walked around in sandals and looked like he belonged more on Venice Beach than Jerusalem. You know I wrote all this down. And since then, many more trends have blown into the church that convey a notion of Christianity that is different than the picture that Paul is painting here. Whether it's the emergent church, the emergent Jesus, or whether it's the hipster Jesus, or whether it's the hip-hop gangster Jesus, Jesus is my homie, you know, whether it's a cool Jesus who's covered in tattoos, none of those portraits are the Christ of Scripture. Jesus, and this is my argument based on years of studying and researching the person and work of Jesus Christ, Jesus was the essence of dignity, dominated by a holy, reverent, sober-minded, mature zeal without a single trace of worldliness in his life. That's who Jesus was. Can you imagine Jesus looking at you with those reverent eyes? Uh, A man who is perfectly obedient to God's law and admonishing you to live in a certain way. Unbelievable. I wish I could have been there. I'm going to fantasize about this when I'm in Jerusalem. Believe me. When we go... If you're going to Israel with us, if we go to the Sea of Galilee, I'm just going to remember Jesus coming up to Matthew, tax collector, saying, follow me. Leave everything behind. Follow me. Let's go. What kind of personality do you think he had? Do you think he was some magnetic, hip, cool, you know, motivational speaker? (laughs) No. No, he saw a prophet of God. That's what he saw. He saw a reverent prophet, apostle, messiah. That's what he saw. He saw a religious man. We're so afraid of that, aren't we? You go outside the walls of this church. Go out there and talk to people. Hey, you go to church? You want to go to church? I'm not religious. It's like the greatest cultural anathema that you can be today is religious. Let me tell you something. Jesus was religious. He worshiped God. He prayed all night. He fasted. He went to the temple. He preached open-air preaching. He, he opened up the scrolls. He devoted. He fulfilled all righteousness. He kept the feasts. He, went to, he, he performed the sacrifices of the temple. He did everything. Since he was a little child, he was in the temple worshiping, devoting his life to religion. What's the difference? His was real. Most people, it's not real. In a couple weeks here, I have a friend flying in from out of town. I've talked to you about him before. His name will go unspoken because of what he does. He's going to come, and maybe some of you guys will end up at my house, but I want him to talk to us about radical uh, missions. (laughs) Uh, See, this... This brother spends the majority of his life outside of America. It's amazing the places he's called and texted me from. 
But he can just as easily be in an American church like this with AC, or he could be out at the Congo and churches outside on the side of a broken down building under a tree. And that's church. And he lives his life for one reason, one reason only, and that's to educate the global church uh, about the radical threat of radical Islam. And um, just amazing. And you'll hear some authentic Christianity from that brother that we need. We need that. We need that. I better get to my third point or I'll have you here all day. The third point, it goes with this point, labor. The third responsibility, the second responsibility was quietness, quietude. And then the second one, and the third one here is labor. He says, attend to your own business and work hard with your hands. Oh, I love this. Because you know how many of you brothers and sisters tell me about how hard you work? And I appreciate that. And I understand it. And I, trust me, I know what it means to be out there working hard. Sometimes I miss it. I miss that construction site sometimes. I tell you what, I worked with people that were almost subhuman. <laughs> Seven o'clock in the morning. And I miss witnessing to them. Trust me, I have praised God. You know, that was back in the day when we had these big old honking MP3 players. I had that thing in my pocket, you know. And I had my whole stack of John Piper CDs that day, the MP3s. And I just, if I didn't, if I admitted I took those uh, headphones off, just defilement. Construction site's quite a place. I think it's a good place to prepare for ministry, honestly. Not that the church is, you know what I mean. It's just, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Why is Paul talking about this? Why is Paul suddenly shifting his focus towards Mind your business, live a quiet life, work hard. Why is he doing that? Well, whatever incipient forms are going on at the writing of the first letter, it seems that by the second letter it's a bit more obvious what's going on probably in the church. Okay? Now we're going to read a little lengthy passage. Second Thess, chapter 3, beginning of verse 6. There, now we understand why this is where this is all coming from. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. What does he mean? He'll explain. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Oh, money's involved. He says, but with labor and hardship... We kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we did not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Pretty straightforward. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, not doing or doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. No, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. Labor, responsibility, that's what's going on. 
And he exhorts them with a promise. What's the promise? Verse 12. So that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. It's a twofold promise. But what he's saying basically is, look, the way that you work, your work ethic, how hard you work, and your view of vocation is going to have a direct correlation to your impact, your influence, and your effectiveness among those who are outsiders. In other words, if outsiders were to come in, kind of like they did in James chapter 2, they walked into the church, see what's going on, First Corinthians, he tells them, be careful because you're a charismatic excess. If people come in, they're going to think you're crazy, right? And so here, what he's saying is if people come in, they're going to think you're lazy uh, because you are being lazy. See, outsiders should not look into the church and see a bunch of lazy slackers in the church who can't keep a job, can't pay their bills, can't get a raise, can't plan for their future financially. We've gone astray in many of these areas. We think that because we're Christians, therefore we have to have a certain view of money that means that our finances and practical things like jobs and bills and stuff like that, that's not really important. What's really important is the spiritual things that we do. You know how hard Luther worked in the Reformation to obliterate that worldview? That is a Roman Catholic view that arises out of the priesthood that says unless you're in full-time ministry, well, ministry in the Catholic Church, but you know what I mean? It's, outside of that, everything else is profane. Everything else is um, not spiritual. That's a total bogus worldview. What does Paul say? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. That includes clocking in. That includes getting a job and keeping a job and being faithful at work and being above reproach. Don't let outsiders hold anything over you. Peter speaks again in step with Paul. He says in chapter 2, 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that, which means unbelievers, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, whatever gossipy things they're bringing up, they may, because of your good deeds, look at that, as they observe them, glorify God, watch this, in the day of visitation. What is the day of visitation? The day of visitation is when God appears to people for salvific reasons. What's he saying? What he's saying is that evangelistically, you are at a great advantage when you do your work to the glory of God, when your conduct is blameless and excellent among unbelievers, so that when the day of visitation comes, when the gospel comes to an unbeliever, they don't sit there and go, oh, but I know a Christian guy at work. I know he's... Oh, man, he's a terrible worker. He's not faithful. Uh, He's late all the time. Uh, She doesn't really work hard. She gossips with everybody else. I even heard him use foul language like everybody else. What's the distinction? Don't you see how that can erode the foundations of your witness? Completely. I got to fit this quote in here. John MacArthur says this. Listen to this. He says, The Thessalonians' proper behavior in their daily conduct, would ensure that they would not be in any need, so they will also be taken care of. If they obeyed Paul's exhortation, they would not always have to depend on more industrious Christians to supply their livelihood. 
That's what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 6. Carry your own load. So there's a limit to the type of agape that we are to have toward one another. We don't want to foster irresponsibility and delinquency. You lost your job again? You just did a few months ago. What's going on? Okay, I, look, if there's a legitimate lead, we should be like, we're the first ones to come. You know, the church, we can, it's a benevolence thing that we can. But if this is a pattern, then when are we going to talk about things like faithfulness and hard work and dedication and your work ethic? No, you know, MacArthur says this. He says, such practical, straightforward living as embodied by the Apostle Paul's exhortation to the, to the Thessalonians is the foundation of all evangelism. In other words, the best, the most effective evangelist is not the most theologically astute, apologetically capable. It is the person who backs up what they preach. They have a life that conforms to the gospel they claim has the power to change that person's life. They better see the power in your life. Amen? Believers who sacrificially love other people exhibit tranquil lives, conscientiously focused on keeping their own lives in order and faithfully carrying out their daily responsibilities in the workplace, avoiding any welfare dependence. Boy, does our culture need that word. All the while proclaiming the gospel in light of the return of Christ... These are the most effective witnesses to their unsaved neighbors and loved ones. What an exhortation for us to practice what we preach, to live what we're saying, to live up to a a standard that is not only worthy of our calling, but knowing that this is what pleases God because this is what will empower our witness This affects our identity in Christ, who we are in Him. And our daily affairs have everything to do with that. Let me pray that God will give us the strength to carry this out because I know it's not easy. Father, life has a way of complicating things. Even things that should be simple, should be obvious, things that should be a matter of principle, I don't want to be naive today in thinking that everyone's lives are just going to be pristine all the time and it's going to be so simple just to follow the preacher's counsel. I know that life is messy, hard. I know that the Lord Jesus Himself promised in this world you will have tribulation. But Lord, we are also cognizant of the fact that in the fire, you are there to preserve us, to provide for us, and to bless us, and to take care of us so that we are not in any need whatsoever. David prayed, oh, I've never seen the righteous go hungry, nor begging bread. Lord, we know that there are extreme exceptions to that. But as a general 
principle and proverb, we can trust and we can rely on the fact that you take care of your people. You take care of your children. You will provide for us if we just trust you. Lord, help us not to trust in ourselves. Help us not to ever fall into the trap of believing that provision is something we provide for ourselves. We know that ultimately it's you. You give us the job. You give us the paycheck. You give us the gas. You give us the cars. You give us the house. You give us the health insurance. You provide us with all of these things, Lord, as an expression of your benevolence toward your children. And so help us, Lord, to do our duty, practically speaking, to walk by faith, to do what's right, to live by principle, and to live a life that's orderly and a life that loves honor and loves dignity, even as our Lord Jesus, even as the Apostle Paul, even as you call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.